Hi, everybody. Welcome to What Happens Next, Week 5. I never would have believed that I would be doing this every Sunday or that there would be over a 1,000 people on the call. We use the Chatham House rules when a meeting or part thereof is held under the Chatham House rule. Participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speakers nor that of any other participant may be revealed. We do this because we want the speakers to be as open as possible so we can learn more without putting the speaker at risk. Today we have a fabulous group of speakers who will speak about the pandemic from a wide range of perspectives. The format of the call will be the same as the previous four weeks. Each speaker will be given six minutes to talk. At the five-minute point, I may throw in a question or two, and then we're off to the next speaker. I think the format allows for a focused conversation that is incredibly interesting. After all the speakers have spoken, there will be a general question and answer period where the speakers will all be on the line to ask questions. This call is being recorded. Our first speaker is Nolan McCarty. He's a professor of political science at Princeton. Nolan, why don't you start us off? Okay, great. Uh, so uh, as I said, I'm a political scientist. Uh, much of my work over the past 20 years is focused on the partisan polarization uh, in the United States. My main focus has been on the increasing ideological and party divisions of party elites and office holders. I and other social scientists have documented a four-decade-long increase in ideological divisions at the national level. Just to give you one intriguing soundbite, uh, we've found that Democrats and Republicans vote with one another in Congress today less than they did during the aftermath of the Civil War. More recently, I've moved my attention to state governments. The data don't go back this far, but I can document that over the last 20 years, within most states, it looks exactly like what we've observed at the national levels, growing disagreement across party lines. In fact, half of state legislatures today are more polarized than the U.S. House. One of the mostly ignored impl implications of these findings, however, is that partisan polarization within states has coincided with a polarization across states, such that there's far more ideological variation in the control of state governments now than there was 25 years ago, which is as long as we can collect the data. It's probably true much longer than that. This federal polarization is associated with three trends. The first is the one I've already mentioned, the ideological polarization of parties, the movement of the Democratic Party to the left and uh, the Republican Party to the right. But there are two other important trends. Second, there's an increased propensity for one party to win both legislative chambers in each state. Uh, in fact, there's only a couple of states in which uh, the parties control different uh, chambers in the state legislature. And finally, there's an increased propensity for the governor to be in the same party as the legislature. So these three trends together uh, show the country moving toward something close to a set of 51 party enclaves where the ideological and partisan differences across the enclaves are quite different. As a result, I and other political scientists have found that state policy outcomes in red states have begin to diverge sharply from those in blue states in areas ranging from taxes to the environment uh, to pharmaceuticals uh, and, and drugs. No one, can you speak in the pool a little clearer? I'm having trouble hearing you. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, so, as I, as I said, these trends together uh, led to a situation in which we have basically have 51 state enclaves whose partisan whose policy choices are being greatly divergent. 
Uh, needless to say, this also creates tension between the national government and the out and the enclaves of the out party. Uh, needless to say, these dynamics have been all too apparent in response to the COVID-19 crisis. In the best of times, such a crisis would strike at the Achilles heel of American federalism. An effective response requires close coordination of the powers and resources of the federal government and the police and public health powers and responsibilities of the states. But given the high level of federal polarization, this coordination has failed to materialize. First of all, there's tremendous disagreement across states as to their preferred policies. Generally speaking, liberals and conservatives view the trade-offs between public health and the economic cost of social distancing somewhat differently. These trade-offs will naturally lead to very different approaches with respect to reopening the economy. These differences are, of course, exacerbated by misinformation on social media that preys on the confirmation biases of those who view these trade-offs differently. One clear manifestation of these issues is the fact that in lieu of a more unified natural approach to reopening, various plans will be implemented, implemented by a series of cross-state PACs. There are now three such PACs, one in the Northeast, one in the Midwest, and one in the Pacific Coast. These cover 17 states in all. Uh, illustrating the point about the partisan polarization, 14 of the 17 states involved uh, have Democratic governors. Only the governors of uh, GOP governors of Ohio, Indiana, and Massachusetts have signed on uh, to, one, to one of these. Uh, the rest of the states are going their own way. Uh, a second issue is that federal polarization in election year heightens the incentives to play blame games between the federal government and the state. It's long been true that electoral politics has a clear way of distorting federal relief efforts. We've seen this in a variety of disasters, usually on the margins. But this longstanding problem, it seems clearly worse in the case of the current administration, who seems to have actively encouraged voters to see the crises through a more partisan lens. Finally, COVID-19 is also politically virulent and it is incident so far has mapped fairly closely to these partisan and geographic divisions. The biggest outbreaks we have seen have been in democratic states such as New York, New Jersey, Washington, California. This seems to have incentivized the focus on reopen, uh, a quick reopening. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, let me back up. This seems to have incentivized the administration's focus on a quick economic reopening and that much of the harm in the red states was economic uh, rather than related to the virus. Uh, but this is a huge gamble that the outbreak would not spread to the red states and to the swing states. But given that the current hotspots are now in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, the calculation seems to have been off. The approach now seems to be one in which to attempt to kind of uh, shift blame uh, to the states, to those states' governors. So, uh, so let me just, uh, to, to wrap up, uh, let me say, I think federalism can be a very valuable institution in governing a large and diverse nation like ours, and that I'm very Madisonian. But I think the COVID crisis on top of these long-term trends for federal polarization I described is one of the things that presents a huge challenge uh, that, we need, uh, that we need to confront. Okay. No, and I'll come back with questions for you in the Q&A period. Um, our next okay, speaker so is...
Dr. Mark Green. Uh, Mark is a congressman, Republican congressman from the state of Tennessee. Uh, and he's a former flight surgeon for the U.S. Army Special Operations. Uh, Mark, fire away. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me on your call. I really appreciate it. And I, I think my instructions were to sort of give the a little bit of an update on the virus from my physician's hat and then talk a little bit about what's going on in Congress um, or what has gone on and what is going on. Let me first say I really appreciate the comments of your former uh, speaker. And <clears throat> the answer is gerrymandering, but uh, I'll, I'll move on. Um, <clears throat> The um, in terms of the virus, and I know this is a very well-informed group, so I won't um, go over the basics, but I'll talk about some of the more recent uh, debates, so to speak. There appears to be a pretty significant body of work now suggesting that the receptor on our endothelial, our, our, the lining cells of our, our, our lungs, uh, the angiotensin receptor is genetically different in various people, and that genetic difference is defining why a guy like Rand Paul, with a similar age and history, health history as Boris Johnson, have such a different response to the virus. Of course, Rand Paul had zero symptoms, zero. And of course, Boris Johnson wound up in the ICU. This receptor may very well hold the key to, um, you know, who gets sick and who doesn't and, and how the virus gets into the cells and then uses the cell's machinery to replicate. Um, some of the more recent literature, and one of the things that I did prior to getting into politics was I ran a healthcare company staffing emergency departments, ICUs, and uh, hospitalists, the guys who see patients inpatient in hospitals now. Um, and when I left the company, I had about a thousand providers. So I'm, I'm networked with these guys. I talk to them daily. What they're suggesting now is that the concern about an ARDS type picture may have been, um, you know, we may have misread it. Um, there's a study out of Europe that supports this anecdotal evidence. It is for the most part anecdotal. The data is just not the sample sizes just aren't enough for us to draw population conclusions. But the suggestion is, is this virus is creating something more akin to high altitude pulmonary edema, and thus it doesn't respond as well to ventilatory support. So when you patient, put a patient, patient on a ventilator, their outcomes are significantly worse than um, if you use high flow oxygen and other methodologies. So that is a current area of research in the care of the patient. And I think there will be more data and more talking about this in the coming, in the coming weeks. Clearly the, the most recent study on outcomes for patients that go on a ventilator is not promising. In one study, it was as high as 68% died. Um, so that has got to be, uh, you know, ferreted out in terms of treatment modalities for the patients that are in the ICUs and are more critical. It also will impact the public health demand for ventilatory support as this progresses. Um, those are sort of two themes that I think are really going right now in, in the treatment of the disease and in the uh, figuring it out, so to speak. Uh, I will say that therapeutics, and I know you have someone who's going to talk more about therapeutics later. But yeah, Mark. 
maybe if you could focus a little bit on um, how you think Congress is going to respond to this in the next couple of weeks. Sure, sure. I can spend more time on that. Um, the you know congressionally, we've got three. Um, bills in place now, one that focused on the science of it, testing, et cetera, $8.3 billion. The second was the Care, uh, Families First Act, which created a cash flow system for paid leave for those small businesses that don't have it, and then the CARES Act. The CARES Act had multiple aspects of it, and the coming legislation in this week will, will focus mostly on addressing the, the, the sort of holes from the original bill, uh, the CARES Act. Very clearly, the PPP program, which was through the Small Business Administration, and interestingly enough, in 14 days, the Small Business Administration loaned, you know, through its system, 14 years' worth of loans in 14 days. So that's a Herculean effort, and $366 billion was loaned out. It was That fund was exsanguinated on Thursday night last, and so now the big push is to get more money into that fund. The president has requested $251 billion. The um, leader of the Senate tried to get a, just a change, a simple change to increase that money to $250 billion more. The Democrats blocked that in the Senate. It was tried twice through what's um, unanimous consent, what's called unanimous consent, where basically there's no vote taken. It just everybody agrees and says aye on the floor and it passes. Um, and it didn't. So... Negotiations have been going on all week long, all weekend long, to determine how we move forward in re, uh, you know, refueling or repacking that uh, PPP program. Uh, the other aspects of the CARES Act have not been depleted. So the funds for hospitals, I think 30 of the 100 billion has gone out. There are two, three, and four level tranches for that money going to physicians and hospitals and nursing homes, et cetera. Um, the current push from the left to add to it is significantly uh, more pointed toward the areas in the original bill that they think will ultimately not have enough money. For example, in the bill that's being negotiated today, an additional $60 billion for hospitals, things like that. It doesn't appear that the Democrats are making the same push that they did on the CARES Act, which was for things like the Green New Deal and of course, $25 million to uh, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. Those kinds of things, that kind of pork doesn't appear to be in their push. So very good okay. faith negotiations have been going on today. Um, I mean, about substantive type stuff. And it looks like my conference call tonight at 8 will tell us what those final agreements are, and we will vote on it, I think, by Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, Mark, it thank appears you. To, yep, okay, cool, thanks. Kara, are you on the line? Kara, I sent you an email with the, um, the right phone in, so please try again. In the meantime, I'm going to go uh, with John Barry. John, are you there? I am. Hi. Hi. Uh, if you want to start out, now, I'll you. ask you a few questions. So John, just uh, as reference, is the author of a book called The Great Influenza, uh, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history about the 1918 Spanish flu. Go ahead, John. Okay. Uh, I want to make a couple of points. Uh, first, a question about waves, seasonality. As I'm sure you all know, uh, influenza and other respiratory diseases tend to be seasonal. Virus survives less well in uh, heat and humidity than cold weather and uh, low, to, and low humidity. 
I don't think that's going to be the case here. I think the issue is susceptibility. In 1918, you had uh, a largely susceptible population. The second wave started in July in Switzerland. Uh, the last place in the United States, excuse me, in the world to be hit uh, was Australia in January 1919 because they enforced a very rigid quarantine. It finally leaked, and of course that was dead summer in Australia. Uh, I think something similar is going to happen here. You've got at least 95% of the population in the United States has not been exposed to the virus. Uh, I think that the, the modelers think on the outside there's roughly 20 times, and that's the most extreme guess of the number of people who've been uh, tested who, who have been exposed. So that still would leave 95% of the population susceptible. So I think that is going to uh, be far more important than seasonality. Uh, I think you'll see undulating swells, not so much a peak and a wave, although that depends largely on how we come out of the uh, restrictions. <laughs> the second point I want to make is the uh, one of the large differences, aside from virulence, between 1918 today is the incubation period. It's uh, obviously much longer. Influenza is one to four days. Most people get sick at two days. This is two to 14 days. Most people get sick at five and a half to six days. Uh, the course of the disease through the body is also longer. So as each generation of uh, transmission passes, I mean, the whole process is just going to take much, much longer. Normally, influenza will go through a particular community seasonal influenza, or for that matter, the 1918 pandemic, in six to 10 weeks, and then it was largely gone unless another wave came later. Uh, but I think that will not be the case with this disease. Uh, so John, those you know, are basically... Your, yeah, go ahead. When you wrote your go book, um, you took it the story through the eyes of some of the key senior medical officials, uh, like the Surgeon General and his... Uh, colleagues and how they view the disease and their their education is at how it affected them. How do you think about telling the story about this this COVID experience? Do you think it's important well, to understand? Go ahead. Well, I think a totally different situation. That was really the Surgeon General of the Army, mm -hmm. William Gorgas, not the U.S. Surgeon General, who was kind of a nothing, uh, Rupert Blue. Uh, mm -hmm. Gorgas was scientifically trained. Uh, mm -hmm. He was largely responsible for the panic mouth canal being built by eliminating yellow fever uh, as a major threat. You know, today, obviously, we have, you know, every nation in the world, the advanced nation has, you know, top flight scientists, biotech industries. Uh, they seem to be cooperating to a remarkable extent uh, as opposed to competing. I, I think there's a pretty decent sharing of information there probably other people on this call, like Mike Ostrom, might, might be able to address that uh, in greater detail. Uh, you know, obviously, I think the story of controlling this thing, medium term, is going to be therapeutics, and longer term, of course, will be a vaccine. Although I would expect uh, people's immune systems to be much more effective uh, the second and third time around. This virus is here to stay, but it may not be a serious threat in the future. Okay.
I'm going to move on to Dr. David Reich next, and I'm going to see if, if Carrie has joined the call. David uh, is a professor of anesthesiology, and he's the current president and CEO of Mount Sinai Hospital. Go ahead, David. Hello. Thank you for inviting me to speak. Uh, just to um, uh, go over the questions you'd sort of pre, uh, 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 sort of uh, push things along with. Uh, the first one is, what am I going to say on 60 Minutes tonight? Uh, I'm mostly going to ask them to replace tick, tick, tick with drip, 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 because we are giving convalescent plasma in large quantities at Mount Sinai Hospital. We've, as of last night, had infused it into 120 patients in our health system. This is a form of immunoglobulin therapy taken from people at least three weeks out from COVID disease and we were very much blessed at Mount Sinai because we have a world-class virology laboratory, and we were able, with um, some fairly heavy logistical work and regulatory work, to move the research assay, which is an ELISA, E-L-I-S-A assay, into our clinical laboratory, and we just achieved qualitative approval for our test for the FDA on Wednesday, but we've been functioning under the authority of the New York State Wadsworth Laboratory in Albany for about three weeks. So we've identified several thousand uh, patients that are high titers and referred some of them to the New York Blood Center, our partner, and have been able to stand up the research protocol with tremendous help from the FDA. Will it work or will it not work remains to be seen. This is a very bad disease and it's unclear what the role of immunoglobulin therapy would be. Uh, human convalescent plasma is sort of a shotgun compared to hyperimmune globulins, which is more of a laser. And uh, many of us are working uh, uh, in the, around the nation and the world, frankly, uh, to develop what the consortium will look like that will produce hyperimmune globulins, which might be more effective for prophylaxis or post-exposure prophylaxis, but more acutely right now uh, for uh, treatment of patients that are uh, sick and dying in the hospitals by getting the therapy into patients as early as possible because immunoglobulin therapy doesn't work until late. The second most important thing, which isn't unique to Mount Sinai, but I think is an emerging consensus around the nation, is that it seems that the virus is somehow injuring the linings of small blood vessels in the lung and other organs, which is known as the endothelium. And by virtue of that injury, it seems to be activating the coagulation system because there is now emerging evidence from around the world, from pathology and from other studies, and from laboratory investigations suggesting that the coagulation uh, the clotting that occurs in these small blood vessels is part of the mechanism of the disease uh, that causes lung injury and injury to the other organs. And so we, among other institutions, have started a protocol to block part of the coagulation system using drugs like apixaban, which is known also as Eliquis. And then when patients become more ill, we switch over to a low molecular weight heparin known as anoxaparin, also by the trade name Lovenox. And in the sickest patients in the critical care units who are very um, uh, tenuous in uh, their likelihood of survival, we're also engaged in research protocols to look into clot-dissolving drugs such as TPA and synectoplase. So it is um, a very intense disease. It's very uh, frightening to treat. I'll also say that um, my best guess is that about 5% of the patients that enter hospitals, or at least a hospital like Mount Sinai, will end up as a long-term ventilator-dependent patient which will mean that we'll have to expand our access in this nation to anything from uh, skilled nursing facility beds with ventilator capacity to long-term acute care hospitals, so-called LTACs, and uh, subsequent to that, an expansion of rehabilitation 
uh, really inpatient rehabilitation resources. So a lot is happening, but I figured I would stop there and give you a chance to ask if uh, to uh, prompt me to answer anything further. Um, it was very interesting what you, what you just ended there with um, finding long-term nursing facilities for patients. Um, and you mentioned 5%. Uh, you know, historically, in like the, the flu two years ago, there were 800,000 um, patients for the flu. Do you think, that, you think there could be as many as 40,000 people who will be on long-term ventilators outside of the normal hospital venue nationwide? Uh, yeah, then it really, the number really depends on how well we do as a nation in controlling the disease because whatever the reason is, whether people have a genetic predisposition to um, uh, becoming more ill, let's say, just as a, for the sake of argument, because they're more prone to coagulation, pro-coagulation states, then uh, it, is, it is possible that we will see very large numbers of people who become ventilator-dependent. We didn't run out of ventilators, but the problem is people don't come off the ventilators with great frequency. So approximately 50% of the patients at Mount Sinai Hospital right now who were intubated are still intubated, and we're several weeks into this. Uh, there's a proportion of patients who are intubated who do very well, and there's a proportion who uh, die relatively rapidly. And our hope is that the uh, work with the anticoagulation therapy and immunoglobulin therapy and hopefully remdesivir, hopefully some of the IL-6 inhibitors. We're hoping that some cocktail of the different medications will um, help us improve the, uh, the clinical course and, of course, the survival and reduce the complications such as long-term ventilator dependency. Thank you, David. Carrie, have you been able to connect? Yeah, thanks so much. Carrie Nadeau was uh, at Stanford, and she spoke to us last week. And since then, uh, her team has put out a piece, uh, an analysis on Santa Clara. Go ahead, Kara. Thanks so much. And it's been great to hear Dr. Green and Dr. Reich as well uh, discuss what's going on and, and John Barry as well. Really appreciate the discussions that have occurred. Last week, for those of you who were present, you'll remember that I was careful to make sure that I didn't um, give the numbers for how many people had immunity to this virus in a random community um, study. And that's because I was waiting for this paper to come out. Now, the paper did come out, and it's not in what we call a peer-reviewed journal. So there are a lot of criticisms about it, which is why in the spirit of equipoise and in being careful about analyzing anything in the media, I, I shared with you as the reading assignments um, the critique of this article as well. So here's what happened. Through Facebook questionnaires, about 3,300 people got called in to get finger prick tests to see whether or not they were immune to the virus. And with that, they happened to use a toolkit for testing the immunity of someone's blood to the virus with a toolkit that might not have been terrific, but it was what they had at the time. Since then, there have been about three other toolkits now that are available um, in laboratories across the country that are probably better in terms of precision and accuracy. But what they had two weeks ago was what they had. And unfortunately, the test had what we call a false positive rate. And that means that when you're looking at the data and you're trying to determine in a random population if someone's immune or not, the random population could actually have had an infection due to a coronavirus family member in the past that wasn't coronavirus 19, but was a family member. And so unfortunately, their antibodies that they made back when they had that cold or that virus could cross-react with this test. There was, there was a false positive rate. 
And that's why we have to be so careful. The lessons learned from this study, I would say, is that before we use any tools and before we publish anything, and especially before we try to interpret it, we need better tools. And we need to make sure we have big numbers of populations, just not 3,300 people, because they came across with a rate of about one in a hundred people had been infected with the virus here in the Bay Area in California. But if you actually look at what the trends were for how many people they thought had the virus originally, it was about one in a thousand um, to one in 2,000. So that really didn't jive well with the understanding of how many people had the virus versus how many people were immune to the virus. And it's a lot of good statistics, but in the end, what does this mean? It means that we need better tools to test someone's immune system. We also need to understand if someone is immune, um, Dr. Reich mentioned this concept of titers, and that means whether or not someone has enough immunity to fight the virus if they were going to have it again. And the South Koreans, luckily, have done a lot of monitoring now long-term of their people that have had COVID-19 originally. And then a lot of people, unfortunately, are still shedding the virus even six weeks later. And there are reports in which patients have had positive results, then they go negative on the viral diagnostic, and then they go positive again. And we think that's just because of the tools rather than the fact that they got reinfected. But we don't know enough now, and we want to be really careful about the data. So I think in general, whether or not this means someone could go back to work and open up the economy, we're just not there yet with the data. What you're seeing is that we're only as good as our tools. We're only as good as our ability to really test people quickly. We need more numbers, and we need more surveys around the country to get a better understanding for how much um, we can prevent and treat this disease. I'm very excited about the treatments that are available now. There's been a lot of work at the NIH and the FDA like we talked about. Dr. Reich also mentioned some of the late-stage treatments. There's a lot of treatments going on even in the outpatient setting. So I'm hoping that there will be immunity, but right now it looks like it's not enough for what we call herd immunity and that we really need to get better therapies and we need to understand better numbers and use better tools to understand who has this disease and how we can treat it. Carrie, thank you. Um, to my speakers, uh, one of one of the speakers' mute button is not on, and we're getting some feedback, so if you could check your mute button, that would be appreciated. Uh, Carrie, quick question for you. In one of the complaints uh, to the Santa Clara study was that it wasn't really that random enough in terms of That's who right. participated. One of the concerns was that the type of people who may have had a little bit of symptoms uh, would have been very aggressive in trying to get onto this testing site because of lack of general testing. Do you think that uh, it has affected um, the data? Yeah, it's a good point. Study? Whenever you do a study, you have to wonder who signs up for the study. And, and for any study, the people that join are very courageous, and obviously we really need clinical studies, and we're grateful for people to sign up and consent for these. But what is a question here, especially interpreting the data, is these people might have been incentivized because they might have already had a cough or a virus, or they might have been exposed at home with someone they knew had COVID-19. So all this says that 3,300 people, even though that might seem to all of us to be a huge number, it's not enough to really know if this was really random the way that we wanted it to be 
to understand how many people in the general U.S. population are immune to this virus at the current time. Hopefully we'll know more in the future, but right now you're right, Larry, that it, was, it doesn't seem to be a random population. They might have been enriched for people that were already sick. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even sure if more numbers is that helpful or if it's, we have to be better at, at randomizing itself because statistics will work. All right, Carol, I'll come back to you in the Q&A. Um, Thank our you. next speaker is Tony Coles. Tony is CEO of of Cerevel Therapeutics. Tony, fire away. Uh, so thank you uh, for that, and I appreciate each of the previous speakers and the way the table has been set for the conversation about what the biopharmaceutical industry is doing uh, to uh, do its part in battling the current pandemic. I won't spend any time uh, in talking about uh, diagnostic testing. Uh, there's been a lot of that in the public media and a lot of conversation. The previous speakers have addressed that. But I will speak to the three different types of therapies, just to set a framework. Uh, typically, when we uh, hear about therapies, most uh, lay people believe that any therapy is uh, as good as all of the others. But there are three distinct types or categories of therapies uh, that uh, I'll talk about very briefly. The first is what, uh, what can be used to actually prevent the infection in the very first place, and that's uh, where a vaccine, either an active vaccine or a passive vaccine can be used. The difference between an active vaccine uh, is uh, you take a, a form of the virus or virus particles themselves, you attenuate them so you partially kill them in some forms of the vaccine and you inject them into a patient and then expect the patient to develop his or her own antibodies uh, to uh, the virus so that when the virus is presented uh, uh, to the body, there's already an immune response that would uh, prevent a further, that would prevent infection. A passive vaccine, such as the one that Dr. Reich uh, spoke about, uh, can be developed either by monoclonal antibody use or through convalescent serum. And this is where antibodies are produced outside of the body, injected into the body, so that when the virus presents, those externally manufactured antibodies will then deal with the virus appropriately. This, uh, this uh, in effect, both forms uh, have the opportunity to prevent the infection an active vaccine, we think, is 12 to 18 months or so away. A passive vaccine, we think, could very well be three to six months away. For full disclosure, I'm a member of the board of directors of Regeneron uh, Therapies, and uh, there is a uh, passive vaccine that Regeneron is working on, uh, which I will not further characterize. Secondly, um, once the infection, the second type of uh, therapy is once the infection has occurred, how do you control the spread of the disease? Viruses replicate in the body by essentially hijacking the body's uh, own uh, DNA and RNA uh, genomic processes and essentially turns the host into a virus factory to replicate the virus, and then the virus then spreads. This is where the use of antivirals comes into play. So a patient's been infected, and what you, the goal of this particular form of therapy is to stop the virus from replicating. Uh, Gilead, Gilead is working on remdesivir, Favoriparvir is a second type of antiviral that is uh, under exploration. And this is where if we can arrest the replication of the virus, you can prevent some of the downstream or uh, sequelae of uh, the particular disease. There's very early, very encouraging small population data for remdesivir to suggest that the course of viral infection can be abbreviated and the side effects or the sequelae of uh, infection uh, can be abbreviated. The third type of therapy, of course, is uh, not a targeted therapy as the other two are, but is to actually 
prevent or help reverse some of the end organ damage that the virus creates, particularly in the lungs. One of the ways we believe this virus works is by creating a significant inflammatory response. So if you can interrupt that inflammatory response with therapies that are designed to mute the body's own immune response, uh, you might actually be able to prevent some of the uh, serious, serious side effects of this particular virus. And Cerilumab uh, is uh, one of those particular drugs already approved on the market for rheumatoid arthritis, and that too is being tested by Regeneron. Larry, let me stop there and uh, see if there are any questions. Sure. I guess one of the surprising aspects about this is that the FDA regulatory process uh, appears to have changed uh, to encourage much quicker ap uh, application of some of the of the drugs and treatments. Um, how do you think that deregulatory process will speed up uh, some of these cures or treatments? Well, there are two, two aspects to this. One, in the 30 years that I've been in the biopharmaceutical industry, I'm trained as a cardiologist, but joined the industry uh, several years ago. Uh, this is the fastest I've ever seen the industry respond with the initiation of clinical trials, and some of that is uh, obviously only to the lethality of this particular virus. So on the industry side, the trials can have been mounted, enrollment has begun very quickly, and as I mentioned, we may have an answer uh, for remdesivir very soon as an antiviral and for a passive uh, vaccination by the end of the summer, and that would be record speed. What's now required and what is indeed happening is cooperative efforts with the regulatory agencies around the world to ensure that these therapies, once vetted and demonstrated safe and effective, can very quickly be approved and then uh, provided uh, to, uh, to patients as, uh, as appropriate. And we do see an open stance from our own Food and Drug Administration towards receiving these therapies processing them, evaluating them, and as quickly as we can, if they are effective and safe, getting into the patients. So I expect the posture of similar regulatory agencies from around the world to be open uh, because of the importance of getting these therapies to people. Tony, thank you. Um, our thank next you. speaker is You're welcome. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. He joins us uh, from the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School. Uh, Stan had an article in the Wall Street Journal this week discussing uh, the role of medical schools in the pandemic. Go ahead, Stan. Uh, thank you. Yeah, my my discussion is a little bit more theoretical and steps back from the particulars of this uh, terrible epidemic. So let me let me go through it. And and my my ideas have been somewhat controversial in the past, and I I accept that, and and so be it. Uh, I think that medical schools have decided in general to reduce the basic science and clinical science components of the education of physicians, and they've generally decided to emphasize the social and organizational aspects of medicine. So typically time in the classroom has been reduced for basic science to one and a half years to one years from the traditional two years, and required clinical experiences have been confined to one year, and then the rest of uh, students' education is filled out with electives. My specific concerns about undergraduate medical education, and I think brought into rather stark relief by the epidemic, is the insufficient time devoted to hard science and virtually no time that's been set aside to disaster preparedness or dealing with epidemics of infectious diseases. And I, I was responsible for supervising Penn's medical school curriculum for 13 years, so I certainly take some blame in this. My thesis is that there is a, a movement underway to transform medical school education even further away from clinical science. 
It is based on a view that social inequalities are the overriding source of poor medical outcomes for certain cohorts and that spending precious curricular time increasing awareness of racism, food insecurity, and other ideas collectively referred to as intersectionality is the key to improving health. My view of this and a view that has been promulgated by leaders of medicine in past generations is that medicalization of social problems and the notion that physicians can and should be the agents of change is a profound error and would undermine their true role to care for those suffering from illness. This is not to say that social inequalities do not exist or that poverty does not play an important role in physical conditions and health outcomes and has been seen to be quite important in this particular epidemic. Rather, it is that physicians have little, if anything, to contribute to correcting these problems and suggest that they, and suggesting that they do merely distracts from the real political and economic solutions that are required. The current coronavirus epidemic is a case in point. My article in the Wall Street Journal presents my view that the epidemic demonstrates the need for more rigorous training and learning about epidemics in medical school so that a knowledgeable physician workforce will be available in the future. And in and, and no way, this does not denigrate the wonderful, courageous, and highly effective uh, actions of the frontline healthcare workers who have been just spectacular in this. However, there is a clear shortage of physicians well-trained in critical care medicine and in many of the specialties required to care for critically ill patients, and therefore more training in these disciplines, as well as in understanding the dynamics of epidemics, would be actually useful to physicians and should be required probably in the fourth year of medical school. There should also be more teaching on design of clinical trials, evaluation of clinical testing approaches, and, and the ethical dilemmas that may arise in an epidemic. And while there is some minimal training in these disciplines, it is just that minimal and generally superficial, and an attempt to avoid burnout has led to a reduction in classroom time and an expansion in more utilitarian activities. And I think this trend has been overdone. Now, I think sending medical students into hotspots would be a terrible mistake, and this has gone on to a certain extent. It can be done, and it was done in World War II, where after two years of medical school, students were taken and put in the front lines caring for battle injuries. But they are really not ready for such intense work without a great deal of supervision. It might be required in a, in a catastrophic overwhelming of the healthcare system, but it would be a very dangerous situation for both patients and the young physicians. And finally, the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on African-Americans and other minority groups has been blamed on the medical care they received by some individuals and on the, quotes American system recently by the New York Times, for example. However, the same disproportionality has been seen in people of African origins in the United Kingdom. So it cannot be all the American system that is to blame. More likely, it is the result of poverty and its attendant housing, dietary, and crowding problems that lead to poor clinical outcomes. Dan, that's terrific. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jacob Appel. Uh, Jacob is the Director of Ethics, Education, and Psychiatry at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He's also an author, a bioethicist, a lawyer, and a social critic. Jacob, fire away. Thank you. So I think bioethics is a lot to offer in a healthcare crisis, but unfortunately, all the evidence suggests that my field has failed to contribute as effectively as it might have during the current pandemic. Um, and this is particularly true during the debates over potential rationing, which fortunately didn't come to pass. But this likely won't be our only rodeo. Either COVID will resurge or there'll be another pandemic or an entirely different challenge, like a geomagnetic storm, which will put pressure on the healthcare system. So I think it's essential for us to review how bioethics could improve going forward. So what can we do? 
First, it became clear as discussions over rationing arose, primarily over ventilators, but also over ICU beds, dialysis, ECMO, personnel, that we lack anything resembling a consistent national policy regarding how to allocate healthcare resources in a crisis. The development of crisis standards was identified as a priority by the federal government in 2009 during the previous flu pandemic, and the National Academies of Medicine provided a strategic guidance for how to do so. But as of April 1st of this year, only 26 states had any publicly available crisis standards of care, and they differ significantly from one to another. So a dialysis-dependent patient would receive a ventilator in New York City or New York State, but would not under identical circumstances in Kansas. This is not an inevitable result of federalism or cultural values. Two comparisons are notable. In the 1970s and 80s, nearly universal national uniformity was achieved regarding the definition of death. So with the rare exception, if you're legally dead in one state, you're legally dead in the 49 others. And in regard to organ transplant, recipients are judged by the same standards nationally. So the number of livers may differ between New York and Texas, but the standards for qualifying are the same. Various frameworks have been brought forward, most notably by Douglas White at the University of Pittsburgh and by the state of Massachusetts, but it's clear we need a national standard for crisis management. Such a standard would facilitate the transfer of resources between states, prevent unnecessary travel between states and cities for care, and ensure that lives are valued the same way in all jurisdictions. Secondly, it's not all clear who should establish guidelines or what criteria we should use, but we do have some lessons from this crisis. First, it's clear that physicians in the field should not be asked to make these determinations. Beyond issues of uniformity, this, this approach raises several major concerns. Delegating choices to physicians would have devastating effects on their long-term emotional and psychological welfare, and delegating choices, whether intentional or not, reflect biases of our largely upper-middle-class white medical profession and may just unjustly disadvantages, disadvantage individuals from minority backgrounds and the poor. Um, one question is also clear. Whatever algorithm we do choose, it should be applied blind in real time. What does that mean? It means independent individuals or panels would review medical records at a distance, blinded by demographic data and name, and then would apply a decision going forward about whether to ventilate. And then an independent party would convey that information to the patient or family. This prevents rational decisions from undermining the therapeutic relationship. And finally, it's very clear that whatever guidelines we adopt need widespread community buy-in, um, particularly from historically underrepresented racial communities and from those with disabilities. The backlash against the current proposal in Massachusetts shows the danger of going forward without buy-in. And I will add that the perception of the healthcare resources being allocated fairly is probably essential for long-term cooperation with other healthcare measures, such as social distancing, and will be particularly important if we try to implement some kind of widespread vaccination plan. And thirdly, we need to grapple with the content decisions as a society during quiet times so we're prepared for a crisis. So two key questions remain unresolved. First, what priorities should we use in rationing? Assuming we don't just use a first-come, first-served system like was once used for iron lungs, then do we only consider short-term prognosis for recovery from COVID or also long-term life expectancy? And should certain groups like pregnant women or healthcare providers, or as we've learned several Virginia hospitals considered, the role of being a leading political figure be given priority? And secondly, how do we balance the needs of COVID versus non-COVID patients? In ordinary times, a patient suffering from a C3, C4 spinal fracture, which would require long-term respiratory support, likely for life, would be given a ventilator without question. But if we know that same ventilator can be given to a series of successive patients over the course of several months, saving multiple lives, should we still give that vent to the spinal cord patients and then take that vent out of the pool? There are no easy answers, but we desperately need a non-normative national bioethics curriculum in schools. So we have a citizenry, 
citizenry educated to address these questions. Our next steps, whether they're continued social distancing or mass vaccination, are all going to require widespread buy-in. And widespread public buy-in can only occur at sufficient levels of education and where equity occurs. Thanks. Thanks, Jacob. Um, this is Thank you. two couple follow-up questions. First one is, you mentioned the iron lung example where um, the, it's first come, first serve. Um, Dr. Reich mentioned that if you take them off the vent you know, too early, they, 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 it could kill them. Um, who gets, if, if there's or just say an elderly person on the vent not coming off and we need the ventilator to save a, a, a young person, um, you think that, does it matter who had it first? And second, who should make that decision? And do you like that um, independent body to make the call? Yeah, so I think we need an independent, independent body, but I also think you raised the question of maybe we want to have systems that allow people to take a patients off ventilators because the alternative is reluctance to put people on ventilators who may be saved for fear that we then won't be able to take them off in the long run. So there's a trade-off at either end that should not be lost on us. That's a fair point. And then I guess my final question, we talked about this a little bit in the pregame. Um, we're going to have vaccines. Um, it's possible as a society we may want to release the vaccine before we know it's safe. How do you feel about opting into a non-safe vaccine? How do you feel about forcing certain workers to take a potentially non-safe vaccine? Well, I think three quick points. First, I think for a system to work well, we really need collective buy-in. If enough people buy in, we won't have to worry about compulsion for the most part. Second, there are people who are in industries or businesses or careers where they're going to be serving vulnerable populations, and we may have to have higher expectations of them. And third, I think we have to address the question of whether we're now going to mandate flu shots to keep large numbers of people with the flu from overwhelming the healthcare system thinking they have COVID going forward. Jacob, thank you very much. Michael, are you on the line? I am, thank you. Dr. Michael Osterholm is our next speaker. He is a professor of public health at the University of Minnesota, and he's also a director of the Center for Infectious Disease and Research and Policy. Go ahead, Michael. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, and just listening to this conversation, uh, it's obviously very wide and broad. Let me... Uh, try to put some context to it about where I think we're going over the upcoming months. Um, those of us who have been working in the area of pandemics have been preparing for this for some time, knowing that this event would happen. Uh, but like many, we're at that point now of knowing how will it end, and I think that's unclear. Um, I would suggest that uh, Sir Winston Churchill's quote that we're not at the end, we're not even at the beginning of the end, but rather we're at the end of the beginning is probably a fair way to look at this whole situation. Uh, we've already heard about uh, transmission issues, asymptomatic infections, but I think we can all can agree that uh, at the very best, uh, we can say that no more than 5 to 7% of most of the population in this country has been infected with this virus, even in some of the hotspots. Um, and for many parts of the country, it's much less than that. Uh, as someone who has worked in infectious diseases and respiratory transmitted diseases for some time, it's very clear that this virus is going to continue to spread until likely it gets well into the 60 to 70 percent uh, total population infection range, meaning that in order to really induce herd immunity, it's going to probably take that much because of just the infectivity of this virus. That means we have a long ways to go yet. And I think that uh, what I worry about right now is that we are a nation that's waiting to get back to normalcy which of course we never will. We, will. we will have a new normal. But the bottom line is because of that, I think we're talking about and considering policies that really aren't uh, in our best interest in terms of understanding what the future might bring. Uh, right now, one can look at models and surely models have been the word of the pandemic so far. 
And uh, I like to look at it this way. We can have, whether it's the University of Washington model or the Imperial College models or any other that have been out there that have given these wide ranges, we all have to understand that at the best, they are black box analyses where conditions are put into play that uh, can surely vary a great deal, as those two model sets have. Uh, I, I liken it to my rural Iowa upbringing where, uh, you know, the guy that's sitting in the restaurant uh, in common sense, what, what plays with him. And I think to give you a sense of where I see this going, and I think a number of my colleagues, is that uh, regardless of what your estimates are, just take 320 million Americans, and if you assume 50% will ultimately be infected over the months ahead, however that happens, which I think is a very fair estimate. If you look at, and you surely can consider the larger number of asymptomatic infections, but even just take it among those who are clinically ill and the numbers that we see, you can estimate that 80% or more based on what we've seen in Asia, what we've seen in Europe, what we've seen in the Americas, uh, will be mild, moderate to asymptomatic infections. Uh, 20% will seek some form of medical care uh, overall, and of those, likely uh, 10% could be hospitalized, 5% will need intensive care medicine, and uh, about 1% to 1.5% will die. If you look at the fact that we now are slightly over 23,000 deaths in the United States, that 1.5 to 1% of 160 million is 800,000 to 1.6 million people. That means that if you believe it, that's a possible model that we'll have to hold as this virus unfolds over the months ahead, we have a long, long ways to go yet. Now, clearly, all the interventions we want to bring, vaccines, et cetera, will play. Right now, I see us really in two lanes of decision-making. One is a shutdown, much like was done in Wuhan, where it really did take that incredibly uh, draconian uh, measures of population movement limitation to bring about what happened there. Um, and as we're seeing now, as those uh, individuals are coming back into the workforce, uh, new transmission issues in China, we've seen that in other countries of Asia that were for so long considered to be the models of how to completely suppress the infection. And I think all of us would agree, if we're holding out for a vaccine one day, which may or may not occur, and we don't know the timeline, as we've talked about, when that will occur, this is probably not a logical or a, an acceptable model to go with. This is total shutdown. It will destroy the economy. Society will be changed forever. And uh, we aren't sure necessarily what we'll accomplish. At the other hand, we have the situation where we just basically say, let it go. And we all know that the implications there on our healthcare systems, as we've seen in New York, Italy, uh, other cities in North America, Europe, uh, Asia, uh, have dramatic implications for what that means. And I think we'd all agree that it's not just the fact that it's been discussed here, that it's just COVID-19 patients we have to be concerned about. But when you bring healthcare systems basically to the level that we've seen in these major spillover events, uh, the care is also highly compromised for everyone else in the community. So that's not it. So I think that what we're all trying to find is how to thread the rope through the needle in the middle. How do we bring us back in some way that allows those who potentially are at lower risk of having serious disease or dying, uh, who are younger in many cases, that can, can be part of an active uh, society, uh, moving the economy forward, uh, holding down jobs, etc., and at the same time trying to protect as best we can those who may be at highest risk with the hope of staving off their infection until sometime when we have a vaccine. I think this is the issue that we really have to deal with. Our challenges are we don't have many tools. We have a tool of suppression, movement of populations. We have a tool right now basically 
of looking at uh, testing and uh, trying to do contact tracing, which if you'll follow I think the media this week, you're going to see the many challenges to that, including a, a major uh, shortage of reagents worldwide as suddenly everyone in the world wants to test. Uh, some of the challenges about the overall predictive value of positives uh, in Minnesota right now, or if you were to test for antibody, even using the best test we have, you'd have as many false positive antibody positive individuals as you would have actual true infected or true antibody positives. And so there's just a lot of challenges there. So I think as we go forward, one of the things we have to do is realize that we are going to be facing a lot of additional difficult days ahead. How that one will play out as given that this is not an influenza model, which John Barry can surely tell us a lot about and has, um, but this is a coronavirus. For many of us, there are enough similarities between the coronavirus and influenza to suggest that we can learn a lot from previous influenza pandemics uh, in terms of what will happen. But I think the, the message here is that all these topics we're talking about today are incredibly important because we are just really in the first or second inning of this nine inning game. And over the next 16 to 18 months or more, uh, we're going to be faced with many of these challenges. And this is not just a theoretical risk. We're flattening the curve, but this is just the first of potentially many curves to come. Michael, thank you. I'm going to come back to you with questions and answers in the question and answer period. Our next speaker is uh, Wayne Kent. Uh, Wayne is president of Empire Lumber and Millwork. Wayne, what's going on in the, in the field? So, uh, Larry, can you hear me? I can't. Fire away. Okay, great. So Larry asked me to speak uh, about what's gone on over the last six weeks uh, at Empire and what our immediate future looks like. Uh, real briefly, uh, Empire Lumber Millwork is a, a third-generation uh, family-owned business located in North New Jersey with uh, 45 employees. We're in the commercial building supply business serving Metro New York, mostly North Jersey and New York City. Uh, first two weeks of March were business as usual, um, really kind of riding the wave of a two to three year construction boom in our area. Um, so the first two weeks of March were pretty, were, were pretty normal. Uh, by the second half of March, um, it was a great wake up call for me, my company, um, and what was going to happen over uh, the next uh, few weeks. I got phone calls from Hackensack University Medical Center, Morristown Medical Center, and Overlook uh, Hospital, and they were in panic mode to create negative pressure patient rooms um, to deal with all the COVID patients. Uh, part of the process was to convert uh, patient rooms into COVID rooms. Uh, doing so, they were taking standard patient rooms that were uh, had flush doors with no lights in them, and... Uh, Empire was furnishing the light kits and the glass to install uh, view panels into these flush doors, as well as automatic door closers to keep doors closed. Uh, in addition, we were furnishing loads of plywood and plexiglass because they were removing windows to uh, install HEPA filters to create um, pressure from or uh, airflow from the corridors into the rooms and out the HEPA filters. Uh, they installed the light kits to uh, be able to keep an eye on the patients from outside of the rooms. Um, we must have sold uh, three to 400 kits in a matter of uh, uh, five to seven working days. Um, 
So the last two weeks were, were quite hectic, and then uh, by April 1st, uh, Governor Cuomo and Governor Murphy uh, shut down all non-essential construction in New York and New Jersey. Empire had a lot of orders that were coming in or had already been delivered for jobs in New York and New Jersey, jobs like uh, at the United Nations, KKR, Citibank, Marshall McLennan, and the Bank of New York. All these jobs were shut down. This created uh, a warehouse problem at Empire because I've had uh, we have uh, hundreds of doors and sets of hardware uh, waiting to uh, go to different job sites. Um, so I had to rent some trailers to uh, store all this material. Uh, in addition, it creates what is going to be a potential cash flow problem for Empire because my vendors do want to get paid, and I'm not really sure if my customers will pay for the stored materials, uh, or they might wait until the materials actually ship. Uh, so I'm in a I'm in a little bit of a, uh, a flux at this point to to see where my cash flow will be, uh, you know, in about four to six weeks. On April 3rd, Empire was uh, uh, applied for our, our PPP loan, and thankfully, on April 15th, we received our funding. Uh, I was I felt very fortunate to be working with a small bank in North Jersey called Connect One, where I really feel like they value my business. Uh, in, in the early, uh, 2010, 2011, I was working with, uh, Wells, Wells Fargo, a big bank, and, and they were very difficult on, uh, the construction services industry, and they gave me a very, very hard time, and I was, I can't tell you how happy I am that I have gone to a small local bank. Um, what... Actually, wait, let future... me cut you off there. Go ahead. Um, yep. and I'll come back to you in the Q&A. Um, our next speaker is Casey Mulligan. Uh, Casey is a professor of labor economics at the University of Chicago. Casey, are you there? Yeah, do you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Do you hear me? Good. Now, the labor market is ground zero for the economic impact because, of course, it's people who carry the virus and can be harmed by it. We're getting an increasingly precise estimate of the size of the labor depression and the economic depression generally. Expressed at an annual rate, the shutdown is already costing $7 trillion, that's with a T, or about $15,000 per household per quarter. Employment has already fallen $28 million. When it comes to projecting the cost of shutting the economy to the degree that we already have, scholars have the advantage of the well-developed national accounts. One of the more esoteric parts of those accounts relates to the fact that calendar years have a varying number of workdays and can be used to project what would a quarter be like if it had nothing but holidays or weekends like we're experiencing now. GDP for such a quarter would be 25% below normal, and aggregate work hours 29% below normal. We got a new survey conducted uh, roughly April 1st of this year that allows us to check this prediction. It shows that aggregate work hours are 28% below normal, which is essentially the same as that what we projected. The new data says that the employment, that employment is 18% below normal which is 28 million people. This is a lot more out of work than you might infer from the weekly unemployment claims. The new data also suggests that capital utilization is about 30% below normal, and therefore that real GDP is about 28% below normal. The widely cited GDP releases do not express the numbers the way I just did. The releases will answer the question of what GDP would be if growth over the past quarter were repeated three more times. 
So if the shutdown continues through the end of this quarter with no other disturbances, GDP numbers coming out would show an annualized growth rate of negative 60 or negative 70 percent for Q2. But there are other disturbances. The economic pie has shrunk in a highly unequal way. That's why Congress passed massive release legislation to recut the pie. But legislation does not produce the goods and services that the 28 million people would be producing. Instead, the relief effort introduces additional distortions that further shrinks the pie. I'm not saying it's unjustified. I'm only saying that concluding that redistribution is justified does not magically make its cost go away. It's the classic equity efficiency trade-off. From a labor perspective, the relief legislation has nine separate provisions and one head fake. Any one of the nine is quite large as historical release efforts go. Back in 2009, for example, the so-called stimulus had a $25 weekly bonus for the unemployed. This time, the bonus is $600 per week through the end of July on top of the normal unemployment benefit. Moreover, another provision in the CARES Act makes over 100 million people, far beyond the 28 million so far out of work, eligible for this assistance through the end of the year. I do not see how we can have much of a recovery when the majority of people can make more money out of work than employed. To put it another way, when something like half of businesses cannot make enough in their operations to outbid the unemployment system. The realistic policy options at this point are, one, to wait for some of the new provisions to expire, two, to allow people going back to work to keep some of their UI benefits, three, for somebody between the Department of Labor and the states to put some sand in the gears that churn out unemployment benefits, or four, a burst of inflation that pushes wages and prices up while unemployment checks stay fixed. The head fake in the legislation is the so-called employee retention tax credit. At first glance, it appears to subsidize having employees on the payroll, but it also has a hidden business revenue tax that completely negates any employment incentive it might have. And then you have the financing of the $2 trillion in the relief legislation, which itself will retard labor market and economic growth, although presumably sometime after the shutdown is lifted. Another important part of the labor market is the accumulation of what we call human capital, such as schooling. Much of it is not officially accounted as part of GDP, but you have 70 million plus kids and young adults whose schooling is not going so well as long as we're shut down. You also have young adults in the early stages of their careers. Young people are coming away with 100 billion less human capital for each quarter that a shutdown like this lasts. I also think civil liberties have some intrinsic value, but my $7 trillion cost does not include any estimate of that type. So as we begin to account for the real cost of shutting down the economy, you can see why a reasonable person might wonder, is a cure worse than the disease? Try to take questions. Oh, that's brutal. How do you think uh, labor markets are going to adapt once the shutdown is finished? Do you, is, is your, you describe it because the, we're paying more for people unemployed. How do you think that will translate? It, was, it will be a very slow return to the to employment, or how will that work? I think we'll have to go down further than the 20, uh, 28 million first. Um, it'll be kind of like 2009 in that regard. We have to go down further first, and then recovering from that depth is going to be slow as long as we have these artificial incentives in there. Uh, you won't you won't have a recovery. And eventually, either the money will run out in Washington or they will realize that it's time to, to get back to work. Okay. Case, we'll come back to you in a second. 
Our next speaker will be Andy Cherlin. Uh Andy is a professor of sociology at Johns Hopkins and the author of The Marriage Go-Around. Go ahead, Andy. I'd like to talk about some of the social consequences of the crisis, and I'd like to bring us back to the Cold War, because it turns out that in the 1950s and 1960s, the Federal Civil Defense Agency, which really was the forerunner of FEMA, focused on how Americans could survive a type of disaster that has now faded from our minds, a nuclear attack by the Soviet Union. You may not be old enough to remember this, but I'm old enough to remember as an elementary school student how I was taught to duck under my desk if I heard an air raid signal and the Russians were attacking. Now, government officials feared that after the bombs exploded, the survivors would engage in an anarchic war of all against all, something like maybe Cormac McCarthy's The Road. So to learn more, the government funded a series of studies of what happened after natural disasters such as hurricanes, floods, or earthquakes. The answers were surprising. Instead of looking out for themselves, people pulled together. Social distances narrowed. Volunteering rose. In other words, there was a surge of solidarity, the social thread that, as Conrad wrote, uh, solidarity knits together innumerable, innumerable hearts. The disappointing news, however, was that the surge didn't last. Soon after the recovery, social solidarity declined back to its usual levels. The sense that people are all in this together faded. Empathy for others lessened. Also, the studies showed that disasters can uncover inequalities that had been hidden and that they provide opportunities for actors to advance their own agendas. So, how might these lessons of what happens after a disaster apply to social life after the COVID-19 crisis? Um, well, not after, but during the COVID-19 crisis and after. We've already seen a sharp rise in solidarity. Uh, think about the 7 p.m. cheers for frontline health personnel, the fulsome praise for essential workers such as grocery store clerks, bus drivers. Maybe you watched the two-hour television special last night that exhorted us all to work together as a nation, actually as a world, to combat the virus. Also, we've seen how the crisis has displayed inequities in healthcare, most vividly, as already been talked about today, in the disproportionate toll the disease has taken on African Americans, but also in the predicaments of millions without health insurance. On the conflict side, well, we've seen a run on guns. And we've watched some state governments attempt to bolster their pro-life agendas by classifying abortions as non-essential medical procedures. But what's so different from this crisis, what I really want to emphasize is the distinctive nature of it compared to all of the disasters that have been studied is its sheer length. In floods or hurricanes, solidarity is highest in the short period in which people are suffering and dying, after which it begins to wane. In the COVID-19 crisis, we may see elevated death rates for a year or more, as we've listened to today. The floodwaters of this disease look like they won't recede until well into 2021. So the length of this crisis, this different nature of it, could have one, or two, one of two possible effects. The optimistic read is that it will prolong the time of heightened solidarity. For many months, Americans may respond more sympathetically than usual to the sight of minority groups that endure a burden of ill health or to workers who don't have health insurance coverage. For example, I watched the PBS NewsHour on April 7, 
when a correspondent interviewed an emergency medical technician from Rockland County, New York. He was exposed to the virus every day, and he admitted that he had no health insurance. How is that possible? The stunned correspondent replied. If the social response moved in, moves in this direction, support could increase for expanding health care insurance coverage, and the terms of the political, political debate could change from whether to cover everybody to how to cover them. However, the less optimistic read is that solidarity fatigue will set in soon. The window for taking action to help the less fortunate will close. Assistance and cooperation will descend into hoarding or distancing or recrimination. Interest groups will seek to use the crisis to their advantage. We don't know how long the solidarity surge will last because we've not had a natural disaster that will last this long since the 1918 influenza, which doesn't seem to have led to much lasting social change. I think that to get a sense of the direction in which the public sentiment is going, we'll want to look at some leading indicators. For example, will charitable giving, will charitable giving go up as it might in a pandemic, or will it decline as it tends to do in an economic recession? Will social media connections and the Zoom boom continue, or will friends and kin tire of so much content? Will the white majority view the suffering of African-Americans with more understanding than it regards their trials in normal times? Will other states follow California's Governor Gavin Newsom in assisting undocumented immigrants, or will support rise for building an even bigger wall on our southern border? The interplay of these forces will determine whether out of this terrible health crisis, we may gain some social capital and some increased support for mutual assistance. While there's no guarantee it will happen, the small silver lining in this great, vast gray cloud could be to narrow the social divisions of pre-COVID-19 America. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Um, I'm going to go back to you in the Q&A in a minute. Let's go uh, to Rabbi Paul Yudwab. Uh, Rabbi Paul is at Temple Israel in West Bloomfield, Michigan. Uh, Rabbi Paul, are you there? Yes, I am. Go ahead. I had a unique vantage point to watch the onslaught of this disease on the state of Michigan um, because on March 11th, I was on a plane to Morocco leading a mission from my temple. And um, at that point, Africa was virtually untouched by this. And, um, of course, two days later, uh, airports were closing, borders were closing, and we literally caught the last plane out of Morocco. Uh, before I had left, our synagogue had spoken about uh, measures to mitigate the disease. We had uh, sanitation stations. We were discussing whether to serve food after services. Um, we, we call ourselves the Kissing Congregation, and we were talking about rebranding ourselves as the Namaste Congregation, where we bow at each other. Um, but when I got back four short days later, uh, my colleagues, and I take no credit for this, but my colleagues, uh, had studied with the, the, the true uh, leaders, um, thought leaders on this issue, and they had decided and actually convinced the entire Jewish community uh, to shut down completely. This was before any such measures were, were even being uh, suggested by the CDC or by uh, or the state of Michigan or the national government. Uh, so they canceled all bar mitzvahs, all weddings, including my own daughter's, a uh, very painful decision to make. Uh, they shut down uh, all, all religious services and all buildings. And um, I couldn't believe, you know, the change when I got back. Um, and as it turned out, uh, the, the highest Jewish value is pikuach nefesh, the saving of the life 
overrides all other Jewish values, other other mitzvot, other commandments. And it turned out they were very precious because um, going back to Morocco, uh, where there was no disease when we arrived, um, as soon as we left, there was an outbreak, and uh, it has been um, traced to a single uh, wedding, a very large wedding that included 200, um, 200 uh, French Moroccans who had flown in for the occasion, and suddenly this became a nexus of the contagion. Um, so in so doing, if you think about the number of weddings and bar mitzvahs and, and services and classes that we would have given just during that short period of time, those few weeks, it would have been, it would have been hundreds if not thousands of people that, that would have been infected because of these happy occasions. Um, and uh, we also cut down uh, funerals. So we can't cancel funerals, but you can certainly make them much smaller, 10 people outdoors, socially distanced, which is what they did. And again, I take no credit for this, um, but uh, something else happened uh, during that those four days, which was really rather remarkable and does speak to the, my, the spiritual topic I'm supposed to speak about. In those four days, my colleagues uh, transformed Temple Israel, the largest synagogue in the country, in the world. We believe in the universe. We're not 100% sure. Um, into an entirely virtual community. Uh, they created uh, such amazing uh, online spiritual offerings that we were actually featured uh, on WXYZ nationally um, the other day. And, um, and what happened is really fairly amazing, uh, which is that our attendance uh, soared. So just as an example, um, we, when we do a, a Seder at our synagogue uh, for Passover, the meal for Passover, we get a fairly good crowd of 600 people. Um, our our virtual Seder this year was attended by 15,000 people. And uh, that all sounds very good and uh, very admirable, and I, I am very proud of my colleagues for having done this um, and accomplished it within such a short amount of time. But it is my biggest worry. Uh, I believe that our success may end up killing us and um, spiritually and as a religious institution. And what I mean by that is um, I think my, my congregants may like it just a little too much. Um, so, you know, they enjoy the idea that they could sit on their couches in their pajamas, uh, rise when we say rise, sit when we say sit, um, and uh, have a spiritual experience. Um, you know, I, my real worry is I'm, I'm pessimistic about, as many of your speakers have been, about the short and midterm in terms of being able to gather. And I think of what will happen at the High Holy Days. Uh, we will create an amazing High Holy Day experience with with. Uh, award-winning directors leading us and, and great music with musicians from all over the world playing together and, and wonderful montages that will tear at people's heartstrings. And our members won't have to sit in the, dry, in, the, in the parking lot as they do now for a half hour to get in and out. I told my colleagues, if we do this, we're going to have to insist that our people go out and sit in their driveways in their car for a half hour before we let them download uh, the experience. Um, and the real worry is, is it, will it become a replacement for gathering? And gathering is the, one of the, the important Jewish ideals. You must be in a minion, a group of 10 people, in order to pray together. And uh, are we going to lose that? And just one word of optimism before I end, which is that um, I do believe in the long run there's a hard ending. There will be a vaccine at some point. And, I, and the rabbis believe that we have an innate need to gather. Um, and I believe that what will happen is um, people will begin to come back in, in hordes to their religious institutions um, because this, this important innate spiritual
sexual need to be with other people will reassert itself and we will and we will succeed because people need to gather to be in a minion. And I'll end with a rabbinic uh, a rabbinic phrase, Ratzon, may it be your will, O God. Amen. Very good. Um, so do you think it's going to be different for Reform versus, I'll say, the Orthodox? Um, because the Orthodox really have to do the minions, and because I guess I always like to think that the Reforms make it up as they go along. Um, do you think we're more exposed to not doing the social gathering, not getting together and going to this technological solution? No, I actually think the, the Orthodox community is, is technologically fairly savvy, um, so they could they could might have a, a but you know we also we also have the need to get together for especially a wedding. I mean, my family, um, and we're finding another way to do it. The Orthodox are going to have to do the same thing. Um, the 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 problem will be uh, how do we get it back? And uh, I think we're all going to have the problem. Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Christian. Uh, Muslim, uh, Catholic, it, we're, we all religious uh, institutions are going to face this problem. Uh, and to some extent, some are arguing that those institutions that are best at putting forth an online spiritual product will do best in the end. In a way, I'm hoping that, although we are doing a wonderful job, I hope it's not true. I hope we all, uh, people come back to their own institutions. Okay, we're now in the question and answer period where any of the speakers can ask another speaker a question. I'm going to start with a question for Andy. Andy, we had Chris Arnotti on the call uh, a few weeks ago, and he was concerned about what long-term quarantines would do for family dynamics. He expected an increase in divorce, spousal abuse, uh, depression, and, and increased alcoholism. Um, how do you think families will adapt uh, to being uh, put in a very small amount of space for an extended period of time? I think there will be two phases. In the first phase, things will actually be fine and may even get better. People, as I said, pull together within families as well as outside. They try to get along. They help each other. And they're able to do that, even in a family that may have some difficulties, for a while. But eventually, if this lasts long enough, we're going to start seeing some problems eventually. Right now, reports of domestic violence are down. Maybe that just means people are, report are reporting, but it may be that for a little while families do okay. So I would say the great challenge of this crisis for families is not so much the short term. They'll be okay. It's the long term, the very long time in which you've got to function well and many families may not be able to. Okay. Uh, question for Casey. Um, you mentioned some sort of a hidden tax or cost in the, triple, in the uh, PPP program. I'm not sure I understood what that meant. What did you mean by that? Yeah, uh, it's not the PP pro pre program. It's the uh, the re employee the retention tax credit. Okay. You hear me? Yeah. The employee tax credit. So it, it's phased out with the uh, revenue of the company. So they they can get this nice amount of cash uh, refunded on their tax return. Um, but as soon as they start selling near to what what they were selling before, that cash is taken away. So they're going to want to think twice before they want to sell that that kind of revenue. Um, and that's the problem. And, and this is a follow-up question on uh, another element, what you said. You mentioned that the unemployment insurance is more than a number of the workers actually earn, and so they're going to be incented to not work to work. You hinted at that Congress may want to change the terms so that um, maybe they get to keep both. Um, do you think to make it you know, cost-effective, we could combine it so if there's, you know, you would at least 
get something more than if you worked at some get with a part of that earnings? And have we done anything like this before? Or why didn't we have this problem before? In the previous stimulus, there were only I thought it was a huge number back then, but there were only four or five million people who could make more on unemployment than they did in their job in terms of cash. Um, now we have tens and tens of millions. So this kind of solution that you mentioned will get more attention. And I'm not aware of the United States doing it. Other countries such as of Germany have done that. You know, it costs more, but it has better incentives. And it, that'll be the question of whether, are we, do we want to kick some of these costs down the road? Which you probably do because we're already suffering enough at the moment. Okay. Uh, next question is for Wayne Kent. Uh, Wayne, you mentioned that... Um, that you got this triple P loan uh, from the from the SBA. Um, what is your plan in terms of keeping your workers and keeping them at work? So uh, I got the loan on Wednesday night. On Friday, I had a meeting with all of my hourly employees, truck drivers, yard workers, um, and I said uh, we were fortunate enough to get the PPP. I said uh, you probably were all looking around wondering when you were going to get laid off and it's not going to happen. we got eight weeks to uh, uh, clean things up because our trucks are certainly not moving, and we're not doing the kind of business we have, but everybody is gainfully employed for the next at least eight weeks, uh, and we will find things to do. Just be respectful and uh, stay busy. Um, And my employees were very happy, I think, to hear that. I said, look, in eight weeks, I don't know what's going to happen, but hopefully things with Murphy and Cuomo will relax and we will get back to business almost as normal. Great. My question, next question is for Michael. Michael, we're seeing the number of infections decline dramatically off its peak in China and in South Korea. Um, Why is this happening? And... uh, I know that they've adopted more draconian social distancing, but do you think that they too will have something like a third to half of their population will end up getting the disease once they're fully open? Um, and why why haven't we seen a rekindling of the uh, of the of, of the disease? Well, thank you. Well, first of all, uh, let me just say that the data are just that as of today. What I mean by that is people are making conclusions about all kinds of things that we see with surveillance that a week later are very different. Um, we've seen that with case fatality rates. We've seen that with incidents. Uh, just remind everyone right now, uh, Singapore is in a state of uh, public emergency uh, on this whole very issue, largely, again, in migrant workers, but it's, it's, it's transmission is currently clean, occurring in the community itself. Uh, Japan has now just gone to a full state of uh, emergency because of very rapidly enhancing uh, cases there. Um, in Korea, I can tell you right now that there is active ongoing transmission. I've been involved with uh, some of the follow-up work there. And one of the challenges with this virus is it's just so highly infectious. You have basically a physics problem going on. You can try to squash it, hold it down. You're going to shut down the world. You can try to let up a little bit and regain your economy, regain social life as you know it, and it's going to get it'll escape. We're currently very concerned about the numbers coming out of China today. You know they've been reporting 80 to 120 cases a day of asymptomatic infections in multiple provinces, and they only report one or two clinical cases. That can't be right. Um, and so I think that 
we are concerned about the numbers in China, but they're going to have the same problem that once people are released back into the workforce as they have been, uh, you know, it's going to take time for these uh, potential outbreaks to build. I think of any country in the world that can contain it, it will be China because of what they can bring to bear in terms of, of follow-up and identification. But uh, be careful. I mean, we've, we've heard over and over again about how some place hasn't had a problem and then all of a sudden it's there. And so I, I think this virus is just going to keep going uh, and only how we suppress it will determine how many infections are going to be there over time. But do you think that if we do some of these uh, draconian policies that it will significantly reduce the total population? Is it, in other words, is it peaks that we're working on? Is it just you know, pushing down the curve? Do you still think that no matter yeah. what we do, it's going to be a third and a half the population, or could we make it something like very small, like 5 or 10% of the population? Well, again, I, I think that uh, we don't have uh, necessarily the perfect lessons from the past. John on here, I'd advise you to ask him the same question. But uh, we're making assumptions of coronavirus that has a longer incubation period than influenza, clearly has some very important infectious uh, principles that make it even, I think, more infectious, says that this is going to be like water leaking through a, somewhere. It'll find the holes and leak out or leak in whichever way it is. And that this is just going to keep happening like this. And until we have what I guess we call herd immunity, uh, it's going to keep transmitting. And we're just kind of like whack-a-mole, keep holding it down. Now, on the other hand, I have to say, remember in 1918, we had peaks that occurred in the early spring that went away all on their own. The human interventions had nothing to do with it. So Mother Nature also plays a hand in all of this. I think we surely had an impact on the uh, scale of the peaks that we saw in certain cities around the world. But, you know, if Mother Nature decides to basically create a peak uh, that is substantially more in terms of illnesses, uh, who's to say that we are going to be able to stop it? We just don't know. You know, so I think you have to prepare for the worst possibility that we could have one big peak and with additional smaller peaks. I, I, or it could just continue to burn and burn and burn, but it will keep burning until we get to that number in, or a vaccine. Uh, then I don't see anything that will stop it from doing anything other than that. In your book, uh, The Deadliest Enemy, um, in one of your earliest chapters, you talk about the HIV experience, and you mentioned that um, several of your colleagues were quite optimistic about a vaccine coming around in 12 to 18 months. It rings true of what we're hearing today about getting a vaccine um, for this pandemic. Um, do you think there's a significant risk that we won't be able to achieve a vaccine and that uh, we're going to have to burn through no matter what? Well, first of all, I yeah, I... I I would say that uh, HIV was in a very unusual situation uh, at the time, and it remains such. I, I said back in 1984 that if we were going to have an HIV vaccine, we'd have a beam me up Scotty machine first, just based on knowing how HIV is transmitted and the inability of our current vaccine technology to intercept that uh, virus. I think with this one, uh, the coronavirus uh, experts are telling us that there may be challenges here too. I don't want to say there will be, uh, the challenges come in two forms. One is actually the the effectiveness of the vaccine and some of the previous data looking at SARS and MERS-like work and other coronaviruses leads us to think that there may not be a vaccine forthcoming. On the other hand, there's work that says, yes, it might. I think one of the issues that we have to resolve is the safety. Uh, and you brought that up in this show here. Um, the safety issue comes around a thing called antibody-dependent uh, enhancement, basically ADE. And with this antibody-dependent enhancement, what happens is if you make a little bit of antibody from the vaccine and then you actually get infected with the virus, you actually create an entire immunologic cascade 
which can be fatal in the individual who has this happen. We saw some of that with the SARS vaccine research that was done back in 2003-04. This is the same condition that resulted in removing the dengue vaccine from the market several uh, years ago uh, with regard to the Philippines and so forth. And uh, you'll hear people cautiously saying we have to understand ADE a lot better before we put this out there. Uh, And I think that's going to be a challenge in terms of timing and how fast we can move. It doesn't mean it will happen, but I think there could be a really major uh, pushback on it if it does happen. Okay. Um, My next question is for Jacob. Jacob, you mentioned uh, the idea of having national standards for um, determining who gets what care. Um, I remember during, I think it was Obamacare, the Republicans um, were concerned about death panels um, and that there would there would be these third parties that would decide who gets to live and who gets to die. Um, do you think you open yourself up for an attack just like that if we go with the provisions that you were discussing? Well, I think the key to remember is we would only use rationing in a situation where somebody, unfortunately, has to die. And the decision is how to allocate the resources, either to ensure that the people who are most likely to survive by the largest number survive or through some other mechanism. So it will happen. What we want to do is a system, have a system that is perceived as fair by a majority of people and has everybody's buy-in, candidly including the people who are currently concerned about death counts. We want to make sure we don't have a system that falls inequitably upon the poor or the disabled or people who have already been shortchanged by the system. So there's no clear answer on how we're going to do it, but it will happen either naturally or by design. And why um, do you want national standards? What's wrong with having different local standards? Well, I think the concern is, um, one, if you're going to borrow ventilators from a different state, you want to know that they're going to get their ventilators back when they have patients in the same conditions. You don't want to have incentives to stockpile equipment. You want to make sure that well-heeled patients don't venue shop from state to state or jurisdiction to jurisdiction looking for certain kinds of care. But most importantly, if you really want to tell people we're all in this together, you got to make sure they're all in this together. And unless people feel they have an equal shot at high-end care, they're not going to engage in the other high-risk endeavors we ask of them, like vaccination at some point. And when you talk about moving ventilators back and forth, I know Governor Cuomo was trying to move ventilators within the state of New York and getting some pushback. Um, it may be much more challenging when you go across state lines. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when you say buy-in, do you mean buy-in? I mean, it's not like the population determining this. This is more at the hospital administrative level. Um, how do you think about the context of those sort of decisions at the the, the highest level of the hospitals? Sure, I do think you need to sidle by it. I think the average person on the street needs to believe they're getting a fair shot. I think the reason the organ donation system works so well is the average person out there feels like if they need an organ, they have an equal shot at it. Um, At the hospital administration level, I think every hospital has to feel like they're getting an equal equal shot at the resources. Um, otherwise, people are going to start competing for resources, and that doesn't serve their patients. Uh, yeah, I'm still on uh, for a little while longer. Uh, question yeah, for, well, uh, you got Andy. yourself ready to go. We'll be ready so we can walk right away. I think someone, we have to put a mute button on one of the speakers. Um, Dr. Green, uh, I think you wanted to respond. You just sent me a text. Do you want to respond to uh, Jacob at all? Well, I wanted to just share that, you know, physicians make those kinds of decisions every day. I mean, the triage, I'm an ER physician by training, and and I'm a military physician, so mass casualty and 
uh, we're trained to make those decisions of triage who, who lives and who doesn't, uh, in an instant. And, you know, when you're in an emergency department, you're not making that decision based on someone's socioeconomic status. It's, it's the likeliness of survivability. And, and that's a clinical medical decision that we're trained to make as physicians, particularly as emergency medicine and trauma physicians. You know, we're just having to do it now with people that are in respiratory failure due to a due to a virus. It's, it's just a different uh, epidemic or uh, disease process, but the, the decision-making is still the same. Mark, on a completely different topic, um, you heard uh, Casey Mulligan's comments about how the unemployment insurance is going to affect decisions about whether or not to go back to work. Um, how do you think that, I, I realize that I think you were probably given only a few minutes to vote on the stimulus bill uh, and very few congressmen probably had a chance to read it. But as you hear about problems um, associated with incentives of not working, do you think that's something that Congress would be able to fix and would want to fix? Or is that something that's going to be so cumbersome that, that in terms of uh, taking money or incenting our poorest uh, citizens would be challenging? I, I think it's going to be very challenging, particularly in the way the legislation has been written now. Uh, I, I thought his suggestion to continue the unemployment the $600 bonus, if I understood them correctly, to continue that after the person gets onto employment as a very novel idea. It's it sort of, you know, we had discussions many years ago about the welfare cliff and when people get on government assistance and the, the fact that when they go back onto work, there is a huge cliff and they lose benefits and they wind up in a, in a net overall loss. If we can somehow fix that, that that's the brilliant idea. How, how we do that, I don't, I don't know. We, we, we'll have to dialogue about that. I may bring it up today on our call today, but getting people off of unemployment and back onto work is going to be the big challenge. Larry, this is Peter Irons. Can you hear me? Oh, I can. Yes, Peter. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't able to. I, it was my mistake. I called the wrong number, but uh, can I make a very brief presentation? Sure. Sure. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, the tension between civil liberties and, and public health. Um, and all of this, I've learned a great deal from the previous speakers, and I have the impression that this is going to be going on for quite some time, no really quick rebound. And that makes these uh, civil liberties issues even more um, urgent. But I want to go back uh, to 1905, a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, a uh, case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, a man who had refused to uh, uh, become vaccinated for smallpox, uh, which was then uh, a serious problem. And the Supreme Court said, I'll read just a very brief summary, the police power of the state embraces such reasonable regulations as will protect the public health and safety. The mode or manner of exercising its uh uh, police powers is wholly within the, the discretion of the state so long as it is not exercised in such an arbitrary and oppressive manner as to justify the interference of the courts. The liberty secured by the Constitution does not impart an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint, nor that one person or a minority of persons should have power to dominate the majority when supported in their actions, such as stay-at-home orders, by the majority of the state. And if we, if we start with that, 
um, the states have uh, tremendous powers uh, to impose the kind of regulations that we are now uh, living under, stay-at-home orders, masks in public, uh, gloves and things like that. Um, but as time goes on, and we've already begun to see this, um, people are beginning to wonder, is this all worth it? Uh, you know, is the, is the cure worse than the disease, as uh, President Trump keeps saying? Um, and in that case, they're going to come out and violate regulations um, that are imposed on uh, everybody else in that jurisdiction. And the question is, uh, can they be stopped? Can they be punished? Uh, can they be um, told that they can't congregate uh, in a political protest or, in fact, that they can't congregate in their churches? Um, and so those kinds of issues, I think, over the next few months are going to be coming up uh, in in lawsuits, some of them without any merit at all, but some raising interesting questions that haven't yet been addressed by the courts. Um, the last thing I want to say, uh, and I apologize for coming in at the end, but the last thing I want to say is that uh, the last three or four years, we've seen a, a tremendous uh, assault on First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, and uh, this has only exacerbated that. Um, it's not something that comes right out of this pandemic. It's something that has been going on uh, for quite some time. Uh, hostility toward the press as the enemy of the people, uh, attempts to shut down speakers um, uh, who are uh, raising questions on both the left and the right, uh, and, and assembly, uh, people coming together to, uh, uh, to join either in worship or protest or whatever brings them together. So um, I just want to conclude that uh, in, the, in the next few months, um, we've got to think more about how we balance uh, the obvious public health needs uh, of the entire country um, and the rights of people to go about their business um, without you know, undue restraint. Peter, thank you. There was um, Last week, we had the mayor of Jersey City speak about um, real life on the corners uh, in Jersey City. And what he mentioned is that, um, that the police really don't want to arrest or give tickets um, to African-Americans sitting on the corner, but they wanted to use moral suasion. Uh, but they faced yeah. a, a challenge. Uh, during, uh, during the week, um, the mayor sent me uh, an email where he said that um, some guys are, you know, spitting in, in the faces of some of the police officers and then um, saying that they're COVID-19 positive. Congratulations, you're now under quarantine. Um, if I die, you die as well. So I think there's going to be a significant challenge where it won't necessarily be the law or the court that will have to enforce this, but some other sort of sociological moral suasion argument to get people uh, back inside their homes. I don't know if you've thought about um, given the, the limitation, the limits of, of state police powers to actively change social norms. Well, there is a, obviously a, a limit to that, um, and the limit really is in the the, the, the attitude of uh, of the people in the community toward the kind of restraints. And and as the court said in Jacobson, a minority, you, one person is what's called the heckler's veto. You know, you can't have this rally because I'm going to disrupt it. Um, and, uh, you know, in those cases, um, 
there's no really clear answer. Um, the jurisprudence in this area is still in flux. The court does have a strong commitment to um, free expression, but it also has a tremendous deference to uh, authority in regulating that. Okay. I'm going to move my next question to Stan. Stan, if, if Michael is right and this disease is with us for the next 18 to 24 months, um, should we change our medical school curriculum in real time to um, focus more attention on either treatments or other aspects of the pandemic? Well, I, I think I think it's going to change, <laughs> and I think even and the problem is right now <clears throat> medical students have been pulled out of the clinical arena. They have the classes have been shut down, so right now it's all an online and and there is absolutely no involvement by medical students who have already been involved in clinical activities uh, to be involved in them at this point. So, uh, but I think, I think there's going to be a, a, just a dramatic change and, you know, they'll, they'll have to respond. And I think the response will be uh, how to take care of, of patients, how to isolate uh, patients, how to, how to protect themselves will be a, a huge issue. And that will take a lot of um, hands-on training. And um, and so I, I expect that that will be the case in, in a very dramatic fashion. I, I think this is changing medicine in, in ways that are incredibly dramatic, uh, not the least of which is uh, individuals who have the knowledge to care for patients in critical care settings are in great demand. I'm getting emails asking me if I want to go and you know work at other institutions and so on. And at the same time, individuals who are have been practicing um, other kinds of medicine, orthopedics, and so on, uh, may be looking for jobs because of this, particularly if there are players and the activity of places like New York and uh, Seattle is recreated elsewhere. David, are you still with us? Yes, I am. David, um, there was some discussion about um, different mortality rates in different segments of our communities. Um, have you thought about reasons why the African-American population may be experiencing uh, more severe rates of pneumonia and death? Um, there's been some talk that it may be related to the presence of a sickle trait, a sickle trait in their uh, genetic code. Um, it could be related to more diabetes and obesity in that community. Um, do you have any thoughts on why the African-American community is having troubles? Well, I, we certainly, at least within the New York region, have a strong association of uh, African-American uh, status with uh, lower socioeconomic status and the social determinants of health, including, as you've mentioned, the hypertension, the diabetes, and the generally poor access to medical care. And, of course, in this disease, very specifically, the inability to socially distance because of um, the density uh, of uh, populations in, 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 in such areas of New York. And so uh, we're just analyzing our own data and are preparing it for um, a letter uh, to hopefully be published soon. Uh, and socioeconomic status definitely does seem to be a, uh, a predictor, uh, but we're, we're just, it, it's so uh, difficult in this early phase to really tease out what are the most important things. We certainly have seen an over-representation of um, African-American and Hispanic populations in the patients in our health system. Uh, but it's just uh, too early to say if it's, if it's social determinants versus a genetic factor per se. 
um, since we're uh, seeing this um, uh, prevalence of uh, syndromes that look like they're um, activation of the clotting system, uh, also, it, it could speak to certain uh, genetic predispositions. Um, I, I'm not really a, uh, an expert in that per se, but I think the whole point is we have to wait a little longer uh, for the models to sort themselves out because uh, looking at one thing on a surface does not always uh, show the deeper associations. Kerry mentioned that there was some work being done that suggests that in, in, you may be, still be contagious for a much longer period of time than 14 days maybe for as long as 60 yeah. days. Um, We've Kerry, been maybe you could comment that. a little bit. Sure. Um, no, thank you. If it really is 60 days um, and people aren't self-quarantining beyond, let's say, 14 days, um, are we, as a society, at risk? Well, I, I we really, I you know... The, I, oh, there you go. Sorry. After you, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I think we just don't know enough. Uh and I don't want to hand wave. I think we need to get the data and see. Uh, there are some people that have become immune, and they are immune to um, getting any more symptoms. And uh, we are looking at this at Stanford now long-term. We have a number of health workers that we're looking at now. So we're only as good as our data, and that data can change on a weekly basis, daily basis. So all of you on the phone and those people that have participated I think we've all mentioned that this is really a rapidly changing um, field and we want to understand, but I have a lot of hope that new data will be coming out. But to answer your questions, we still need to understand about viral shedding. Uh, but I do think some people are becoming immune effectively and going negative permanently. And so we've seen that. For those people that have not, we're trying to understand why those people have not. And was it was it genetics? Was it viral load in the very beginning? So we're there are people that have become immune, and that's hopeful. But we also need to understand why some people have not and why some people are still shedding virus. In the sample of 5,000 people that we studied at Mount Sinai, we have actually done titers and tested them at the same time for nasopharyngeal shedding. And essentially, it's almost zero by 21 days after symptom onset and completely zero at 28 so far, but it's in 5,000 patients and about 90% of the people with confirmed COVID had high titers. So I do think the evidence will be out relatively soon uh, and that um, the shedding of virus or at least the particles of virus at 14 days may or may not still be um, uh, infectious, but I think we're all in a cautious phase of this and even so cautious as to say that even with high titers of uh, IgG in the, um, in the blood of people who are recovered, we cannot guarantee that reinfection is not possible. So I agree completely with Sherry. There's so much that's unknown, but I think we are starting to see patterns uh, that suggest um, that by the time the virus is uh, disappearing, that the immunoglobulins are rising certainly by 21 to 28 days. Yeah, and I sent some figures, Larry. Um, feel free to send those out if you'd like. That's a, a global figure of what the data shows so far. Carrie, um, Michael um, pointed out that there is some um, substantial errors in testing with regards to uh, a false positive for antibodies. And so when that uh, study, the Santa Clara study, showed that approximately 5% of the population had antibodies, what is your sense, or do you have any sense of what part of that portion are probably fake, uh, are false positives? Um, yeah. So what would be, yeah. 
Yeah, I totally agree with Michael. These are statistical principles that we have to be extremely careful about how to interpret data. And when you have a false positive rate of two out of 401, I know that seems really low maybe to the average person, but to a statistician, that's pretty high in terms of margin of error. And so that's what makes us worried that a large proportion of the people that were positive in this in this test that was published recently in Santa Clara County, a large proportion of those people that were positive could have been falsely positive. And so we have to be very careful. But all this is to say that articles like that are important. People trying to understand zero prevalence is important. The activity alone is important, but it's also important to know how to interpret the test and be very cautious. And uh, and I do believe it will be a catalyst by which other places will now hopefully use better tools. But um, I don't think there's going to be an absolutely perfect tool, like Michael said. We're, we're always going to have to be in a situation where we're going to be careful about interpreting. And as we get more data, like Dr. Reich said, Hopefully, it'll be published soon and we'll understand about for any individual person what the test meant for them and their outcome. And that's going to be important to understand and to be able to manage patients and to help people. I guess my final question before we turn off is to Nolan McCarty. Uh, Nolan, um, are you on the line, first of all? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Okay, great. you know, you, you spoke a lot about um, polarization and the relationship between state and local governments and the federal government. Um, we're going to end, I think, in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a, a significant dispute between state and local governments, uh, particularly in the blue states and the president, as to when we should get back to work. Um, and the president um, seems to be pushing... Uh, more to be going to work more rapidly, and he's going to take his call directly to the public uh, to encourage the public to put pressure on the Democratic governors to open up. Do you find that problematic? Because it seems to me like we're, he's taking it to the political uh, world, um, the Democratic world, in, in terms of lower D, to resolve policy disputes. Um, do you, why do you, do you, first of all, do you find that problematic, or is, or is that the right way to handle it? Uh, sure. So, so I think it's pretty clear that uh, he doesn't have any, uh, strictly speaking, constitutional authority to reopen uh, and rescind the orders that have been given by, by state governments. But he has lots of levers uh, which he can do so. Uh, policy authorities have been given to him through statutes over the years. My preference would be for him to kind of lean on those and try to negotiate his way uh, through that, given the, the real potential of this of going to the people, while it sounds very good in a democratic sense, I think there's a real danger in that it kind of, uh, once it gets politicized, the information uh, and misinformation about uh, the trade-offs will become, will become manifest uh, and will sort of force the hands of uh, governors to ignore public health officials uh, and placate uh, to the crowd. Uh, I guess my second concern is that he's doing this already somewhat with his tweets of uh, liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, uh, at the same time that there were uh, uh, protests uh, at those state capitals, uh, many of which were kind of driven by kind of uh, hard right activists 
you know, carrying guns. And I think it's a very difficult situation if he's going to weigh in on specific uh, protests like that. I, I think it's I think it's good for the president to use his levers to pursue the policies as he's entitled to do. Uh, I think it's good to state his opinions about what states should do. Uh, but I think there's a line that needs to be drawn in terms of uh, kind of inciting uh, certain styles of protest uh, and certain uh, uh, information, misinformation about the dangers of the virus in order to force the hands of those governors. Thank you. Well, that ends uh, today's What Happens Next Week 5. I'd like to thank all of my speakers and all my listeners for listening in. Thank you very much.